Our sovereign king died in public shame on a Roman cross. Our king, who is sovereign, shamefully died on a cruel Roman cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This reveals in striking clarity two approaches to life, two ways to live, two different ways to understand fundamental reality. In a sense, it echoes the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, where he said, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Let him take up his cross, an instrument of torture, of death. Let him take up that cross daily and follow me, Jesus said. And this is another way of saying that our conduct should match our creed that our behavior should match our belief. And the presenting problem today in too many of our lives, too many of our hearts, too many of our churches, too many places where people name the name of Jesus, the presenting problem today is not drastically different from Corinth 2,000 years ago. Because When God's people live with the values of those who are perishing, they're contradicting the fact that they are being saved. This was the problem in Corinth. People who were believers, who had been called, who were sanctified, who had been blessed with spiritual gifts, they were living not as those who were being saved, but their attitudes and their interactions with one another and the way they were going about doing church It reflected the attitudes of those who are perishing, not those who are being saved. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1212, 1212. 1 Corinthians 4, and nearly all of our Bibles, mine that I'm preaching from, and likely the one you have, we have those headings that help us as we read. I want to make sure you understand the headings are never inspired. They are additions to help us kind of track along with the theme, but the heading of my Bible says the ministry of the apostles, or in some Bibles it says uh, Paul defends his apostleship or something like that. Those are just completely wrong, all right? Ignore that. Because that's not really what's happening in our text this morning. It's not a defense of apostleship. But here's what Paul does in the text, just to catch you up with a sense of context as we're working our way through this New Testament letter called 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's assertion here, that for those of us that are apostles, those of us, as we'll see in a moment, who are spiritual fathers, we are examples of the countercultural godly wisdom that we need to live by, as opposed to the temporal wisdom and the temporal values that we all swim in. What Paul does is he takes himself, and Apollos, we'll note as we read in a moment, he, he takes them as examples by way of application of saying for all of us, we all have to determine, are we going to swim in or are we going to live and follow after the philosophies and the worldviews that we all swim in, that we, we, we hardly recognize because we are immersed in it all. Or rather, like apostles, 
Not because the apostles are so much better than us, but just their responsibility was to be a model and an example for us. We'll see that in a moment. That they can be examples of what it means to swim against the current, to live in a countercultural way, to, as we are saying this morning in our title, to mind our place, to mind our place as people of God, not as people who are chasing after and victims of this world system. So with that, by way of introduction, look with me at the text, and we'll begin at the end of the text. We'll circle back to previous verses before we're through, but we want to read this morning beginning in verse 12. Our text begins in verse 8, but look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and begin in verse 14, not verse 12. That's an error. Verse 14. Here the Bible says this, and remember, this is all God's Word for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides, some of our Bibles say tutors, you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, our text this morning, as we'll see in just a moment when we go back up into verse 8, our text includes an honest, insightful, brutal, yet loving takedown of the carnality and fleshly living that this ancient church in Corinth was chasing after. They were living lives by temporal values that fundamentally clash with what we would call godliness. And what the apostle does in this ancient letter is he engages in something that I would call sanctified sarcasm. Now, you know me by now. You know that I happen to love sarcasm. I've told you before that it is likely, I think, my spiritual gift. I can't find a passage to write that, back that up. And I'm aware of the saying, it's a common proverb, I'll paraphrase it this morning, sarcasm is the last result of small minds. I'm aware of that, but I still love sarcasm. And therefore, this may be one of my favorite sermons I've ever preached. I've never preached this text before, but wow, it is dripping with scathing sarcasm. It's sad that I love it so much, isn't it? Listen carefully, sarcasm, we have to acknowledge, it can be hurtful to weak or vulnerable people, so we need to be careful. But it can also be very useful for proud, stubborn, and haughty people. And the people to whom Paul is writing were manifesting those attitudes, pride and haughtiness and stubbornness. But before we get to that, we need to remember what we saw back in chapter 3. 
Because you remember we saw there that Paul says, listen, the way you need to think about life is everything is yours, and then yours, you are Christ's. So everything is yours, and then you are belonging to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to God, he says at the end of chapter 3. And that's a worldview, that's a way to see all of reality. And the question we asked last week is, by whose standard, by what standard will you live? How will you look at reality? Where will you find your values? How will you make your decisions? That's what we saw in chapter 3. All things are ours and we are Christ's. And so we have to ask ourselves, by whose standard are we living? Another way to say it this morning is, mind your place. Know who you are and know whose you are and live that way. And this was something that fundamentally the church in Corinth was failing to do. And I think you and I will see that sometimes it's also a failure in our lives. So with all that in mind, go back up and look beginning with verse 6 and see what Paul says to this church and the Holy Spirit says to us. Remember, they thought they had arrived because of all of their giftedness. And we're going to circle back to this in 1 Corinthians over the next few months They were a very gifted church, spiritual gifts, and yet because of that, their assumption was, hey, we've arrived. I mean, we're the standard instead of God being the standard. So look at what the apostle says, beginning in verse 6 here in chapter 4. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, notice his care, implication brothers and sisters that you may learn by us not to go beyond what was written. It's a very important phrase. Not to go beyond what was written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, don't miss this. What he's saying is it's completely incongruent for people who are equally members of the body of Christ to be at odds with one another, for any to be puffed up against another. I mean, It was incomprehensible to Paul. It was, you are all the body of Christ. You're all in a place that, the way the old preachers have taken to say it over the last couple of centuries is the ground is all level at the foot of the cross. But some of us seem to think that we have a leg up. And Paul says it shouldn't be this way. And note the text. The reason it's that way is because you've gone beyond what was written. We'll explain that in just a moment. Look in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? In other words, aren't you all the same? What do you have that you did not receive? Another very important phrase. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? One commentator says, here are shut out pride of intellect, pride of blood, pride of race, pride of country, because we are all one in Christ. Now he says, You're not to be going beyond what is written. Now, what's he getting at there? In his day and time, as he was writing, what was written was what you and I would call the Old Testament, the Scriptures of Israel. And already in his letter, he's quoted the Scriptures of Israel. Look in your Bibles. Go back into chapter 1. Look at verse 19. Do you see what it says there? And as I read these, there are five examples. As I read them, think about what they say. Think about the standard that they set. Because what he's saying in our text is that you've gone beyond this. This is the revelation of God, but you've gone beyond it. Notice in verse 19 of chapter 1. For it is written, 
God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Go down to verse 31 of chapter 1. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Look in chapter 2. Look down in verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Go down to the end of chapter 2. Look in verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? It's an Old Testament quote. And you go into chapter 3, and you look in verses 19 and 20, you have two other quotes from the Israeli, the Jewish scriptures. You see in verse 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and also, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Listen, here's the issue. The issue of what was written, Paul says, don't go beyond what was written. Let me say it this way this morning. Here's the issue. It's the godness of God in all things. It's the godness of God in all things. It's His sovereignty. It's His power. It's His knowledge. It's His, can I use it, can I coin a phrase? It's His ultimateness. It's, he is above and beyond all things. And this is what the scriptures that Paul has already included in his letter, this is what those scriptures imply, that God is sovereign, that He has authority, that He has power. Why would you go beyond what is written? Why would you think that there's something beyond the godness of God? Don't go beyond what is written, Paul says. Recognize that this is who your God is. This is what He does. Let me be simplistic about it. I try to boil things down to make them simple, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Don't go beyond that. Don't, don't think in your philosophy of life you're going to find something better than that. Don't, don't think with, with all of the, the, the wisdom and the, and the intellectualism and the sophistication that we've become used to in the 21st century, don't think we're going to find answers that are better than in the beginning, God. Don't go beyond what's written. Because when you do, you end up in trouble. And this is clarified by the questions, the rhetorical questions in verse 7, and especially the middle one. Do you see it there? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. It is God's providence. They'd forgotten that their abilities and their opportunities and these spiritual gifts that they were so proud of and all of their blessings, they were from God and from God alone. And what that does when you remind yourself of this, that every, every potential that you even desire is out of God's providence, not just the things you enjoy, but, but every potential desire that might come true in your life will be a gift of God's providence. It brings you to a place never of conceit and surely not boasting. That's what they were doing. They were boasting because they'd gone beyond what was written and they'd forgotten that everything they have, they've received from the hand of God. Instead of conceit or boasting, we should have a response of gratitude. You know, the church historians tell us that St. Augustine, it was this passage that transformed his view of his image of God, his sense of who God was. When he, when he labored and thought upon this truth, what have you received? What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. And so that doesn't just mean your temporal blessings. It means your, 
your giftedness, it means your intellect, it means your ability, and it also means, in the, in the sense of your salvation, it means that God is the one who gives salvation. You haven't accomplished it yourself at all. What do you have that you did not receive? The godness of God in all things. And what the wisdom of this culture, this world, the wisdom of our flesh, what it tends to do is it, in pride it goes beyond what is written. And we all know the right answers. And so we would say, oh yes, in the beginning God. Oh yes, who can answer back to God? Uh, oh yes, we recognize this. But functionally and pragmatically, we go beyond what is written. And we forget that everything we have is a gift of God's good hand. And as we said at the end of chapter 3, that all we are, we have in Christ, and we are Christ's indeed. We have all things. This is going beyond what was written. The godness of God in all things. And so then Paul is fleshing this out, what this looks like in our lives. And this is where his sarcasm comes into play, beginning in verse 8. And it is a, I would call it this morning for the sake of your notes, it is a savage deconstruction, a savage deconstruction of what I would call worldly wisdom. Now I have to stop and just explain that term worldly for just a minute. Especially for those of us, if we spent much time in church when we were young, some of us heard that term, here's the problem with the word worldly. Either it has the wrong connotation in our minds, that's those of us that were raised in churches kind of like Calvary, or we've never heard the word before and it sounds odd to us. So let me try to explain what I mean when I say worldly. When I grew up, worldly had to do with the way we dressed, with the things we did, our activities, the, our entertainment, those kinds of things, the music we listened to. We didn't listen to worldly music. I could start telling you stories, but my wife says when I tell those stories, it sounds like I grew up in a cult, and so I'm not going to tell you those stories, all right? But for many people, when they hear the word worldly, the word worldly, that's what immediately comes to their minds. And then for others of you, you've never heard the term before in your life, and you live in the world. In fact, you've heard that God created the world. And so what do we mean by the term worldly? Generally, that word refers to the world system that because of sinfulness opposes the thought of God. The Bible teaches that there's this, remember from Revelation, there's this system of Babylon that always exists. The New Testament uses the term the systems of antichrists, of little a antichrist that is always around. And that, that system of worldly thinking, that system of temporal thinking, chooses to see reality and, and ground and find value in something other than what God has said in His Word. And so it can be blatant. The atheist is the ultimate example of worldly thinking because he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't acknowledge God's existence. But it can also be subtle. And with the Corinthians, it was subtle because no one's accusing them of being atheists. But what Paul is saying is there's this way of looking at life that is the wisdom of God, and the world looks at that and calls it what? Foolishness. And then there's the folly of God, and the world looks at that and says, well, that's wisdom. And when you live after the world's wisdom, which is God's folly, you are manifesting a worldly attitude, and you are manifesting, in a biblical sense, worldliness, because you are chasing after, you are being defined by the culture around us instead of what is written. 
you have gone what? You've gone beyond what is written. And that's the problem of worldliness. And it was a significant problem in the Corinth church, and we're going to deal with it for the next several months because it has all kinds of manifestations. Some of them subtle, as we'll see next week. Some of them are scandalous. But they're all significant. So he engages here in a savage deconstruction of worldly wisdom. And he derides this attitude that they have, that they have arrived. So look at what he says in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. One author says they had their own private millennium going. And you see, this is the attitude of Wall Street. It's the attitude maybe of, we'd say, Montecito, or maybe it's the attitude of your street and my street, where we think we take offense because life hasn't turned out the way we think it ought to for us. Because after all, what does the world say? We have a whole, a whole worldly philosophy rooted in this context, in this world, and forgetting what God is doing. We might be just like the Corinthians. They were so proud of themselves. And at the end of verse 8, he acknowledges that ultimately this is going to happen. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share our rule with you. And then in verse 9, he's talking about himself, not the Corinthians. And so we're going to come back to that. But he says in verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We'll circle back to verse 9 in a moment. Look in verse 10. Notice the pronouns. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. You catch his sarcasm? You've arrived, and we're nobodies, Paul says. By the way, this text and the next text, popular preachers have seemingly never read them and certainly will never preach them. Back in chapter 1, look in verse 26. This is their calling. In chapter 1, verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But what do you have? You have the self-perception in verse 10 that they are now the wise ones, that they are the strong ones, that they are the ones that have honor. You know, in preaching, sometimes I use what I call homiletical imagination, uh, the imagination of preaching. And I wonder what it was like to have come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night in Corinth and they read this letter from the Apostle Paul. You talk about awkward party. It's like this is the Apostle Paul and this is what he's saying to us about our attitude. The sarcasm, it's dripping with sarcasm, it's scathing. It's a savage deconstruction of their own worldly wisdom, their self-centered pride, their indulgence, instead of the humility and dependence on God in all things. The Apostle James writes about this in chapter 4, and he calls it friendship with the world that is enmity with God. See, there are two ways to live. And this wisdom that is from below, quote-unquote, as James says, this wisdom that is of the world system, this worldly wisdom it's just folly. But in God's economics, in God's structure, in God's kingdom, everything is turned upside down. And so 
While on the one hand, Paul gives this savage deconstruction of worldly wisdom, he also gives what I'd call this morning a sober exhibition of godly wisdom. He shows what godly wisdom looks like, and it's not what we would ever think. Look again at verse 9. Look at the way godly wisdom manifests itself if you live that way. Look again at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. In other words, not first. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And then skip down to verse 11 and listen. As you read, listen for the language that describes the cross, that describes Jesus. It echoes of the one who is our Savior. Verse 11 He says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted. That word's used in Matthew 26 of Jesus. And we are homeless. We're vagabonds. And verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands. By the way, that was particularly despised by the worldly philosophy of the Greeks. When reviled, we bless. Who's that sound like? When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And the commentators have all kinds of suggestions about what those words really imply, and some of them are unpleasant and gross. Let me just tell you, that's a pretty reasonable translation. Whatever comes to your mind when you think of the scum of the earth, whatever comes to your mind when you think the refuse of all things, that's what Paul's talking about. And living that way, do you see this, folks? Living that way, from the perspective of the world system around us, what do they say? That's foolishness. And God says, there's wisdom. That's wisdom. The metaphor here is in Rome, when the army would come back, the conquering army, there would be a victory parade, a triumph parade. And we would begin with the general and his elite troops. And then all the supporting soldiers and all of the infantry would would come in the victory parade. And then finally at the end, Paul uses the phrase at the last, at the end would be the conquered victims who were now slaves. And typically the parade would have an ending spot. It would be going, do you know where? It would be going to the Colosseum be going to the arena, where the captors would then be put on display, and for spectacle, it's the term, for spectacle, they would be taken to their deaths. Objects of scorn in the theater of the world is what Paul's saying. The arena in Corinth had 18,000 seats in that ancient city for people to come and to look and to watch as conquered slaves were mutilated for their entertainment. And Paul says, you want a picture of what worldly wisdom looks like? Or what godly wisdom looks like in the eyes of the world? It's that victory parade. And you know where we are in the parade? We're right there at the end. We're the ones headed for the arena. Paul wasn't a theoretical sufferer. He didn't, as one preacher you always said, he didn't traffic in unlived truth. Paul, this was his experience. But what I want you to catch about this, there's so much we could say, the whole sermon on that. But notice it says in verse 9 one more time, I think that God has exhibited us apostles. 
as last of all. Yes, the evil system did this. The the guilty men, the, the leaders of Rome, the power structure, yes, they were guilty, but God is the one who ordained it. God is in control. God is the subject. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it just might be the lion's. And if you reject that, if, if you can't handle that, then you've imbibed too much of this temporal, this world, worldly wisdom that says that the purpose of your life is your comfort and your temporal satisfaction. And it might just be that God, in His divine wisdom, says, I have a far greater plan. I have a far longer plan. I have a far more wonderful plan. But Paul was convinced that it might well be one of pain or temporal suffering. Again, this is the godness of God in all things. And embracing this is godly wisdom. Now, we have to pause for just a moment. And we have to really try to apply this to our lives. What does this pride or worldly wisdom look like in our lives as opposed to godly wisdom? And look again in verse 10 at the specific contrast. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. That has to do with philosophy, your philosophy of life, your sophistication. It says we are weak, but you are strong. That has to do with our status in life. And then it says you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. That's our reputation. Paul's essentially asking, as he uses this metaphor, he says, where are we in the parade? I mean, are we with the apostles in the last? Or have we assumed that we deserve to be up there in the front? When we get to the arena, are we going to be down there facing the lions? Or is our assumption that God owes me something? I should be up there in the stands. Maybe I should be real close to the emperor. Maybe I should be in a place of privilege, a place of comfort, a place of my choosing, not God's choosing. I'm forgetting the godness of God in all things. Do we envision ourselves in the lead, in the place of privilege and power? Are we self-satisfied? Are we self-indulgent? Do we feel put upon when circumstances go south, when things don't turn out the way we'd hoped they would? We expect to live like kings. And what 1 Corinthians tells us, it's been all the way through so far, is that yes, that's coming later. Our glory will be later. We will share the kingdom later. All things are ours, and we are Christ, and Christ is God's. Yes, that's coming. But for now, we need to decide how we're going to live day by day. Will we live by godly wisdom or worldly wisdom? The church father, Tertullian, was asked when he was preaching this kind of truth about how difficult it was to live countercultural. His people pushed back. And they said, basically, we've no other way to make a living, in other words, than worshiping the emperor, than, than going along with the, with the flow of, of, of taking the easy way out. They said, we've no other way of making a living, and Tertullian said, then must you live? Must you live? And we all know the Sunday school answer to that question, right? But the question is, what's the Monday through Friday question answer? Because typically, we're going to protect ourselves. We're going to chase after that comfort. 
when it comes to shame, when it comes to reputation, when it comes to the way our neighbors look at us, our family, we're going to choose a way of ease. We're going to get by. And when we do that, we're choosing how to live. And we're living just like the Corinthians, chasing after temporal world-based wisdom. One author says it this way, We too have bought into the world's dominant vision of what it means to be wise, powerful, and of great worth, and have, like the Corinthians, made void the preaching of the cross. The wisdom of the cross is a message not about strength instead of weakness, but in fact about power through weakness, through self-sacrificial behavior, through reliance on God's power to work through us. That's godly wisdom. And I wonder, I wonder this for myself as much as for all of us, what would it look like for us to live unconcerned with our own prosperity, our own standing among others, our own reputation? What would it look like for us to be so given over to the theology, the power of the cross, that the world system considers folly? What would it look like in the way we spend our money, in the way we invest our time in others, in the way we manage our emotions? In the way we serve in the church, what would that look like? This text is intensely practical. This was a real letter to real people who were living real life. And so I want to leave you with four safeguards against worldly wisdom or four safeguards toward godly wisdom. Four safeguards that are in the text that will guard against this worldly wisdom and living in a worldly manner. The first, Paul says, is to find an example. Find an example. And you see that in verses 14 and 17 that we've already read. Basically, Paul is saying this, and think about it now. He's saying, follow me into the arena. (laughs) Follow me into the arena. He doesn't want to shame them, it says in verse 14. And then he says, you have many guides in Christ, tutors. That was a a slave that would care for young children and bring them along. But he says in verse 15, I am your father, your spiritual father. And then in verse 16, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. What a bold statement. Find an example, he's saying. And then he goes on to talk about Timothy, who, like the Corinthians, was a child of Paul's faithful ministry and Timothy will come and he will remind them, it says at the end of verse 16 or 17, remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So here's what you've got. You've got Paul, who already he's used these metaphors. Paul was the planter. Paul was the foundation layer. And now he says, Paul, I am the spiritual father. You have others, and he's not denigrating these. You have others that water what's been planted. You have others that build upon the foundation. You have others who are guides. But the reality is this, what he's leveraging is he's leveraging his relationship with them. And he says, don't forget the fact, he's not denigrating them. He just says, I'm your father and you know me. So follow my example. Don't follow me because I'm an apostle. That's not so much the point. Follow me because I'm farther along as a disciple of Jesus, and I'm the one I was there when you were birthed spiritually. Follow me. 
Now, we can't follow Paul. And I'll, I'll tell you, here at Calvary Baptist of Santa Barbara, Dr. Goodspeed's not around anymore. He planted this church in 1935. He's not here. And many of us, our spiritual fathers, are no longer around. But all of us can find an example that, that, that's kind of implied with Paul saying, it's not just me, I'm going to send Timothy. So my presence might not be there for you, but you'll have Timothy, and that'll be an example for you. And what will Timothy do? It's applied in the words. It's, it's really pretty clear. He says he'll teach you, but it'll also model it for you, which is important. Both are important. We need to be taught, but then we also need someone to show us how to live it out. And if you're going to find a safeguard against worldly living, you've got to find people in your life that are an example of that. Ideally, and this is where it gets sobering for those of us that have the privilege of leading in the church, it's not just a privilege, it's this weighty responsibility, because ideally you should be able to look to your elders as examples. You should be able to look at those who are older in the Lord, even though perhaps they're a younger person, but maybe they've walked with Jesus longer than you have, and they're an example for discipleship, for becoming like your master, because they've walked farther than you, longer than you. That's the idea here. He says, imitate me. He's, I'm your spiritual father, and in that culture especially, sons were to imitate their fathers. They were to mimic them, generally in vocation. If, if your father was a baker, that was likely what you were going to be. If, your father was a banker. That was likely what you were going to be. If your far, father was a farmer, you would likely be a farmer. Spiritually, he's saying, I'm your father in the Lord. Timothy is a partner with me, and, and you can follow us. You can imitate us. We need examples, someone to mimic, someone to follow. And I'm going to just suggest to you, as I say it, knowing that it's never ideal, but I'm going to suggest to you that the in best of times, this kind of relationship, you'll find an example that will come out of your connections and friendships within your church family. Generally speaking, over a period of time when churches are healthy, you will find people in the church body that will be your example. Find an example. Secondly, watch for fruit. In verse 18, after he has softened, in a sense, his language in the previous text, he reminds them of this problem. There were some in the church that were misleading them. He says in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out, listen to this, I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. You see, he's saying, look for the evidence. Look for their fruit. Do they just talk it? Or do they live it? Is there a manifest evidence of fruit in their life? Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but it consists in power of the evidence. He's saying talk is cheap. We all know that. And then he says in verse 21, essentially he says in verse 21, don't make me come down there like a father, right? <laughs> this is my mom used to always say, wait till your dad gets home. I didn't want to wait till my dad got home. In verse 21, he says, what do you wish? Shall I come with you to you with a rod? By the way, those guides, those slaves that would escort children, they're often pictured in Greek literature as having a rod, and sometimes they would use it abusively. He says, do you want me to come with a rod or 
in love with a spirit of gentleness. And then we go into what we call chapter 5 next week, and you see an example of where the rod has to be used because he deals with a scandalous issue, and he deals with it in a somewhat harsh way. But that doesn't have to be that way. But the burden of all of that for the people who are reading this letter is look for the evidence And the people that are leading you, quote-unquote, whoever was influencing this crowd of the Corinthian church to embrace kind of a worldly philosophy of sophistication and of, of reputation and of power, he says, you need to look for real power in their lives. And not just talk, but real power. And, and we read this, and we think, well, he's talking about supernatural gifts. He's talking about the evidences of the Spirit. He's talking about miracles and signs and wonders. That's not what he's talking about. Look at again, verse 20. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What kind of power? Well, it's the power basically to save. It's, it's the power for holy living. It's described by Paul in Colossians 1 through the fact that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's power. You recognize the greatest miracle you'll ever see was the fact that your cold, unregenerate, rebellious heart was redeemed and regenerated by the Spirit of God so that you were able to repent and believe. That's the greatest miracle you'll ever see. Let me press that. That's the greatest miracle you'll ever see. And all of these churches that are clamoring for miracles, it's as though that's how God, what God has to do to show himself powerful when God has already shown himself powerful by taking a rebel like you and making him his, your chi- his child. That's power. That's kingdom living. And the people that embrace worldly living, they don't have it. So they talk a lot. They talk a lot that appears to be sophistication. They talk a lot in what appears to gain reputation with the world, to impress others, but there's no real power. That power shows up in the lives of these same apostles that we've read about. These same apostles who were faithful. You don't want to know how faithful they were? Matthew suffered martyrdom by the sword. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke was hanged on a large olive tree in Greece. John was scarred in a cauldron of boiling oil and lived his last days banished on Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a high pinnacle and beaten to death with a club. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew was bound to a cross and preached at the top of his voice as his persecutors to his persecutors until he perished. Thomas was run through with a lance. Jude was killed by executioner's arrows. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas suffered the same. And this same Paul, his head was cut off by the Roman emperor. You say, well, that doesn't sound like power. They were faithful to the end, and that's power. If we took the time this morning, we could go to... Hebrews 11 and read about those that suffered and they were faithful and the writer of Hebrews in a phrase that never ceases to move me he says these of these the world is not worthy because that's worldly wisdom 
We could talk about the lives and deaths of martyrs throughout history. We could talk about the martyrs of the Reformation. We could talk about people that are dying today because they're Jesus followers. We could talk about Christians who are being faithful in the war in Ukraine and Christians who are being faithful in in the face of Muslim persecution in Nigeria. And we can talk about the people in our church family who are fighting cancer in faith, who are laboring in prayer for their wayward children, who never give up even though life has apparently from a worldly perspective dealt them painful, devastating blows, and yet they still are willing to say, Jesus is Lord. That's power. Talk is cheap, but that's power. So we watch for fruit. We watch for evidence. Third, we yield to the Word. We saw last week, by what, by whose standard will you live? It's here in this text as well. In verse 6, remember what he said? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That was the Old Testament scriptures. And then in verse 17, when he's talking about Timothy, and he's talking about what Timothy will teach, he basically, I don't have time to cover all of this, he basically says, this is my teaching, it's the apostles' teaching. This is the way God is teaching, leading you. And we now have that teaching. You know where it is? It's right here in your lap. It's this book. And so you yield to the Word. We have a book. Do you see how countercultural that is? Do you see how otherworldly that is? Do you see how the world looks? They look at me standing here, and I'm saying to you, every answer you need in life is right here. And the world says, that's folly. And I say, we have a book. And then finally, Cling to the cross in verse 15. The cross has been all the way through these chapters in 1 Corinthians, and he doesn't specifically mention the cross, but it's in the gospel, and there you find it. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's that Jesus died for sinners on a cross. Cling to the cross. Do you recognize how a consistent vision of the cross of our Savior starves the proud values of worldly wisdom? You can't get your life philosophy from Netflix if you're meditating on the cross of Christ. UCSB is not going to give you the solutions to living well if you're meditating and giving over and clinging to the cross of Jesus. How can any thoughtful person be arrogant standing beside the cross of Jesus? And that was the problem, and it's always the problem, of worldly wisdom. They've gone beyond what is written, and they've forgotten the godness of God in all things. By the way, that's the reason we come to the table this morning. Because we remind ourselves, once again, of the cross. Watch for fruit, yield to the word, Find an example, cling to the cross. Most of you know we'll bury my dad this week. Worldly wisdom. My dad was a fool. I tell people, Here's my dad's approach to life. If you offer him two weapons, a BB gun and a howitzer, he always chooses the howitzer no matter what. 
Like, and I wouldn't necessarily do things the way he did things. But I'm thankful for his life. He was not what one would call successful, but he was faithful. And the world looks at that and says, that's folly. And the implication of this text we just saw is that the universe, the angels and all people, they will one day see that faithful, humble, godly wisdom is what will last forever. For those of us that are living life today, every day, we have to mind our place. We have to always guard against the wisdom of this world and chase after the revealed wisdom of God. Father, speak to our hearts today in ways that are powerful, significant, and especially as we come to the table. Help us faithfully, consistently cling to the cross. Help us always yield to the Word. Help us, Father, find faithful examples. Make us the kind of people that look for genuine evidence. Glorify yourself as we seek after the wisdom of God, which is the power of the cross every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.